If you have God's Word, um, please take it and turn to Psalm chapter number 19 this morning. Psalm chapter number 19. That's where we'll spend most of our, or a good portion of our time, um, as far as um, relating to the message this morning. Again, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you and uh, praise God for your presence among us. And uh, we thank God for you. Thank God for all of you. I'm praying that the Lord really accomplishes a mighty work in our hearts this morning as we gather around around God's Word. Uh, if you've been with us, um, we've been taking some time just to talk about the church and the necessity of the church and the, I think, essential activities within the church. And those things which we cannot give up, those things which we cannot deny, those things which make a church a church. And some of it sounds redundant and some of it may sound like we already know these things, but... I mean, inevitably, it's those things that we already know and that often get pushed aside and neglected or um, totally abandoned. So oftentimes throughout Scripture, the apostles, particularly in the prophets, um, remind us of certain things that are um, essential um, to the functioning of the body, to the functioning of the individual, to the um, prophet of the home, and to um, the reason that he has um, converted us and saved us for the glory of, of Christ. Um, so we seek to honor Him. We seek to honor Him not only as individuals, but also as families and, in, you know, and, and as a congregation. That we would be the influence in this community that God has ordained for us to be. Um, thus, we must remind ourselves of these things. Um, last week, we really focused in on, uh, in a sense, the Apostles' doctrine, the Scriptures. And I want to give one more sermon on that today. Um, and you say, well, why would you do that? We already know that. We've been going over that in Sunday school, so it may be somewhat redundant. Um, because if we talk about the nature of the church, we must talk about what it is, and what it is, the apostle reminds us in First uh, Timothy chapter three and verse number fifteen, that Paul writes to Timothy um, to the church that he's probably um, pastor over, which would probably be Ephesus, um, that they would know how to conduct themselves in the house of God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Um, interesting relationship between us and or the truth in us, the truth in the congregation. It's almost like the old age-old question, and we know the answer to this because we have Scripture. You know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Um, what comes first, the truth of the church? And there's this inter interrelationship uh, between us that we know that the church is born out of the activity of the Spirit through the Word of God and the faithful preaching of the Gospel. But at the same time, we know that that happens because the church is faithfully the pillar and the ground of the truth upholding in the community and within the congregation um, the truth of God's Word. It is preeminent. It is primary. And when we gather together around uh, in, in, in worship, our worship is dictated by um, God's Word itself. It is um, the proclamation of God's Word is to be um, the, the, the center of this wheel of which everything grows out of it, all the spokes, and, and, and it's, it's that upon which the ministry turns. So it is something that we often need to reground ourselves in because this is not just something that we do. This is something that we are. This is who we are. We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. Um, and we looked at 2 Timothy um, 3, 16 and 17 last week, and I want to look this morning at Psalm chapter number 19, the uh, last half of it. So if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word um, out of reverence for it. And we'll take our reading up in Psalm chapter 19 and verse number 7. Um, you read these words, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's pray one more time. Father, again, we come to you just to thank you for your presence among us. God, and we pray that you would be with us even now as the Word of God goes forth, that you would open eyes, that you would open ears, that you would give us tender hearts, Father, ready to receive God's Word, and that we would receive it with joy. Father, I pray for my own self that you would help me to be faithful in the Word and that you would help me to preach with joy, Father, not a begrudged old man standing up proclaiming truths of antiquity or traditions of men, but the very Word of God. Father, that there would be a reverence among us that this is the Word of God, but there will also be such a joy that this is the Word of God and that while you could have abandoned us many ages ago, and probably should have according to our standards and worldly standards. Um, men and women whom we have abandoned for less, much less than, than the offense that we've caused against the holy God. Jesus Christ the righteous, the Son of God, enters in to the world to save sinners like us. Not only that, to believe, but to leave us a great treasure in the Word of God that you might govern our hearts and govern our lives and make us more like your Son, Father. It is an immeasurable treasure. So as we sit this morning before the Word, we recognize that we sit before you, Father. And as we proclaim the Word this morning, we, pray, we, we recognize it's not ours, Father, but yours. Um, and you have settled it in heaven. And it is, it, is, it is, as David states here, a treasure beyond measure and sweeter than the honeycomb. So, Father, may we taste this morning and see that the Lord is, is good. And even to the point of transforming, converting the soul, Father, would you make us more like your Son this morning by virtue of what Christ accomplished. But the Spirit of God, Father, um, just take our hearts this morning to high and holy places, Father. Make us something that we have not been in, in former days as you continue to transform us by the renewing of our mind, Father. So give us just a few moments out of the week this morning, Father, to just stay our hearts and, and focus our minds on you, Father. And we trust you to do this because... Uh, we know that uh, left up to us, it's an impossibility. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. <laughs> Just to remind you, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16 and 17, we have probably the most extensive, um, aside from uh, what we read in 2 Peter, of the um, extensive treatment in the New Testament of the nature and the, the function of the Word of God. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, you may remember, um, Paul writes to Timothy, and he writes in the midst of a godless era, um, of which we are not, um, uh, which is not that much of a foreign concept to us. And he lists and catalogs just a whole host of sins um, that would that would categorize a day that was coming. Um, thus, he reminds the, um, uh, his son in the faith, Timothy, um, to stand fast, to preach the word. And he reminds him that he must preach the word because of what the word is and what the word does. He reminds him of the nature and the function of the word. What is it? Um, it's holy scripture. Um, it's writings that were set apart by God himself. 
I'm distributed by an apostolic authority, an apostolic example to confirm uh, the, 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 very, uh, the, the very Word of God and to leave us a great treasure um, that would guide and govern and direct our lives. It is that which God determined for us to know, embodied in a writing that would be preserved throughout the ages for every generation to come and for every generation to glean from. Um, it's important to recognize that its origins not of man. Um, the Scripture says that it came not by the will of man, but by the Holy Spirit, um, as He carried them along, men along, um, by the very uh, Spirit of God. It is God-breathed. It is, that's what that term inspired means. And then we understood why, why it was given. Um, because God has a purpose in mind. He has a goal. He has an intended end. Then what's the goal, someone might ask? Well, the goal was stated there as well. That the man or the woman of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Thus the Word of God, Holy Scripture, does certain things. It instructs, it teaches, it rebukes, it corrects. Why? Because God has a, an end in mind. He has a game plan and He has a purpose um, in, in, in the world in each and every one of our lives. Far too many in our day see the ultimate purpose of the church is simply evangelizing to get people saved. Um, there's a thrust to evangelize, 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 and if we can only uh, get them saved, then our job is done. Um, so we, there's, there's a thrust to just convert, 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 even to sometimes to the expense of um, faithful evangelism that inevitably erodes into coercion and manipulation for a simple profession of faith or a decision in Christ. And, and once they're in, they're good. You know, we're good. So we move on to the next person. And if a simple profession of faith, but, but if a simple profession of faith was the goal, then, um, you know, th then, then that model would be perfect and evangelism would be all that we're responsible for. But, the, but, but while the goal is genuine conversion through faithful preaching of the gospel, it is to be followed by discipleship in the family and the local church that aims particularly for maturity, thus equipping every man and every woman for the service that God has called them to. That's the goal, right? That's not only the goal of Scripture. He says, he says to Timothy, you know as well as I do that, that the, the, the Holy Scriptures are, what is, are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Even the Old Testament came, contained the gospel in such a fashion to convert and to restore and to revive the soul, to transform it into something that it was not. But that's not the end of Scripture, and that's not the ultimate goal of God. That there is, uh, as we learned in uh, the first hour this morning, that, that there is a great goal in mind of God from beginning to end, that He created the world, and it will finally fully be consummated in Revelation on that grand day, and that's our hope. But until then, in God's kingdom, in Christ's kingdom that He's established here, um, what we find in time and reality is the unfolding of that kingdom and pictures of that reality here and now as God converts and God continues to transform. And that when a person is saved, he is to be brought within the church and under the sound teaching of God's Word. Why? That the Word of God would root itself in their lives and continually take them to that end. And that's what we're going to see. And you even see it there in verse number 12 of Psalm chapter number 19. Or uh, sorry, Psalm chapter 19 and verse number 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 
And he goes on to talk about how the, the Word of God even holds them back and rebukes and corrects even in this portion of Scripture. That it is that, that the Word of God is the primary tool that the Spirit uses to keep us, to preserve us, to unfold um, the, the, the drama of redemption, the kingdom of Christ, even in our hearts and in our lives. So while the goal is evangelism and genuine conversion through the preaching of the Gospel faithfully, it is to be followed by discipleship under the Word of God in the home and in the church with the aim of maturity. I'll say that again. I'm repeating this for, 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 for emphasis because the goal is maturity, thus equipping every man and every woman for the service that God has called him to. Hence, um, thus uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 17, um, that the Word of God is given to the church one primary reason for the perfecting of the saints, as in Ephesians chapter 4, for the equipping that he's to be thoroughly furnished for every good work. And what we find contained within that passage of Scripture is the sufficiency of the Word of God to complete what God desires for a man or a woman to be um, in the totality of itself, that God has given us, um, that which... That God has saved us for a purpose and that God has given us um, the means by which to accomplish that. At Ephesians chapter 4, the goal is that the local congregation would be uh, mature, that it would be unified, that it would grow up into the very uh, fullness and stature of Christ. So then we have to ask the question again, how does one achieve that goal? Is it even achievable? Has God given the church a task that cannot be accomplished? Is our father like the Egyptians of the Old Testament who treated the Israelites so poorly in their slavery that he commands them to make brick and he give, they give them no straw? You know, Or is God the God of the Israelites who abundantly and above goes beyond all that was necessary for them to live a life faithfully in the wilderness with the ultimate goal of making it to the land of Canaan? And are we not much like the Israelites? who even in our abundance often blames God for our failures and misfortunes and the lack thereof, denying the blessing all around us, arguing with God that we don't have enough, uh, blaming God because this thing didn't go our way, or blaming the world for our sins and our misfortunes and our failures, blaming that it's too strong as if God didn't accomplish enough or give us enough, and we make God like the God of the pagans, again, who who commands them to do something that they're unable to do and doesn't supply them with the things necessary to do those things. Who live, who live on many days um, in, in, in ultimate moral failure and in frustration and depression and discouragement um, because in our minds His grace is not sufficient. Or did God give us everything that we need for life and godliness? And if so, then why are we such an ungodly people? And if we're not such a godless people and ungodly, then what's our secret? Or what's your secret? Well, there is no secret. God has made it abundantly clear that the Scriptures are the sufficient tools to supply all that is needed to be a faithful, mature, equipped, godly man or woman that pleases Him. It is, in a sense, this day our daily bread. 
Um, it is, in a sense, the manna that He provides daily to meet our needs. That um, He did not, Jesus, uh, speaking of Jesus, did not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. And that, it too, is to be our reality. That God is not a God of the pagans. That God is not um, like the Egyptians. God does not command us to do something and refuse to give us the tools necessary um, to live it out. God has supplied in Christ, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, um, all that we need that pertaining to life and godliness. And even within that passage, which we'll get to a little bit later, um, the key lies within the knowledge of Christ. Thus we come to Psalm chapter number 19, and verse number 7 through 14. It gives us probably the greatest and most comprehensive expression of the sufficiency of Scripture in the entirety of the Old Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 in the New Testament. Uh, Psalm chapter number 19, verse 7 and on in the um, Old Testament. And what we read is a, in this portion of Scripture is about the creation of God. If you were to read verses 1 through 6, you would see that great, and, uh, that great uh, portion of Scripture is that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. And he goes on to just glory in the presence of God's creation. And then David spends the last half and even more of it just glorying in the special revelation that God gives to His people. I mean, we are enamored by the sun today. We are enamored by the beauty of creation I mean, we glory in His presence as we drive to church or we go to work or we sit out at the park and we see our, our little ones play these little image bearers of God whom Psalm 139 says He knit them in His mother's womb and we, and we just glory in the presence and the power of God. And uh, David says, how much more, you know, in some sense, should we glory in the presence of a book that contains all that we need for life and godliness? I mean, how in the world, that, that all falls um, to, the, to the feet of, of, of Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil, um, if not governed by um, the special revelation that God has given us. That God teaches us in creation um, that there is a God to be worshipped. But God teaches us in the Word of God and the Bible preserves for us how that God is to be approached. And it gives meaning to all that. It gives meaning to your career. It gives meaning to your wife. It gives meaning to your husband. It gives meaning to your marriage. That, that, that while we glory in the, in the magnificence of the creation that God has set before us, um, I believe that the Scripture is overabundantly clear that what we have contained within the Word is even more, value, more precious than gold, even fine gold, he says. Why? Because it is contained within this Scripture necessary for us to make sense of all of that. And all of this, that without this, we are nothing more than mere animals walking around um, knowing that there is something that we ought to do and not knowing how to do it. Like the Egyptians. He's a God, he would be a God of the Egyptians, but He has not left us to ourselves. Even our own wickedness and our utter depravity and our own unfaithfulness and our own rebellion, God just continually coming to us in different forms, giving to us a word to govern our thinking, um, to guide our minds, to restore our hearts, to revive us, and so many other things. And it's given by a man by whom we can probably relate. You know, in our culture and in our day and even within the context of the church, um, it, is, it, is, um, it is almost our tendency um, to abandon the things even before us and seek after other methods, other philosophies, other sciences, other things to make sense of the world and how we're to obey God. Um, and many arguments are, you know, um, they don't deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, but in a sense they do um, by saying that that not only do we have the Word of God, but we need these other sciences. We need philosophy. We need psychology. We need um, certain things to make sense of these things. 
Um, as if the first 1900 years of church history, you know, who didn't have modern psychology and many of the textbooks that we have that are just, you know, um, and many of the other theories that are coming out that just make so much sense of uh, things like racism and sociology and psychology and philosophy and all these things that just the last 50 years or the last two decades have came out, man, it just made sense of, of everything, you know, as if for the last 6,000 years and the last 2,000 years of church history that they didn't, you know. Well, if that's the case, you'd think, man, we'd be such a, a much more godly people than in previous days, wouldn't we? I mean, how in the world did they survive without the, la the latest sociology textbook? I mean, how in the world did they survive in the New Testament age and overcome racism without critical race theory? I mean, how in the world did, 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 did the church survive and thrive? Um, how did the Reformation take place when they didn't have the latest textbook? and the latest philosopher, and the latest um, scientist, and the latest psychologist come out with the, with the next best thing to help Christians along as if they weren't able to get along. How in the world did the, did, did, did the Catholic Church, how in the world was it split right down the middle and the light of the gospel come out without all of these things? I'm going to tell you why. Because, because it was a, a work, of, because contained within the Scriptures is all that we need for life and godliness. That we don't take an approach um, that, that says that, that, that we need natural revelation along with God's special revelation to make sense of all these things. While there is, in a sense, common grace that God gives to all men um, to, to the point to where even they can govern their lives um, by that grace without special revelation, um, it is God's Word that directs. It is God's Word that works. And, and David knows that. You know, again, David is not a man of uh, antiquity that just can't relate to the things that that are going on in our day. That's often the argument, you know, that um, the, the Bible is a book of antiquity written by men in a different context, and they just don't understand 21st century um, or 20th century Christianity, you know. And um, thus, we need some additions to um, what we have here contained within the scriptures to make sense of it all. And while we believe the Scriptures, we need more. I'm going to argue that we don't. And I'm going to argue that King David was not too far from us. Um, nor was any of the other men um, throughout the, the Scripture. We're all made of the same stuff. Um, the Apostle says that, that, that um, there is no sin that is not common to man. Um, the, the Apostle, um, I believe it was James that wrote that um, Elijah was a man with passions like we are. Thus, uh, the faithful, uh, fervent, uh, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That man has made and been constituted of the same stuff since Adam. And coming out, we struggle with the same things. Now, yeah, there's just new tools to carry on um, with greater depravity because of the technology of the age. But inevitably, it begins in the same place with the same sins of old um, that they struggled with, that we struggle with in this day. David was an example of someone who occasionally sought the advice of human counselors. Why? Because he was a man who um, was wrought with sin many ways like we are. As many of the Psalms reveal, he, he, he seeks out um, human counselors, but ultimately he always turns to God for answers. And he was especially dependent on God alone when he struggled with personal problems or emotions. When it, whether it was he was hit by depression or inner turmoil, he turned to God and wrestled in prayer. When the problem was of his own sin, what did he do? He repented. He was broken and he was contrite and he prays in Psalm 26, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. The spiritually mature always turn to God for help in times of anxiety, distress, confusion, unrest of the soul. 
And they're always assured of wise counsel and deliverance by God. And that happens because every need of the human soul is inevitably spiritual. And that's not to say that every need of the human is spiritual. We don't deny that. We don't deny that there is bodily needs that science can offer an answer to. We're speaking of um, the nature of the soul, what makes man, man. Um, that, that which defines him as him. It's not the external. It's not what makes you a human being is more than just scientific and the fact that you have an opposable thumb and a vertebrae um, and a backbone. Um, it is that, that God has made you an image bearer of Him and He's put within you um, this reality of a thing that connects you to Him. It's the human soul. And it is that which struggles. It is that which um, that just, just um, uh, struggle with the human experience, that struggle with the emotion, that struggle um, with the spiritual nature. And David was a man who knew that. He knew what it was like to be exhilarated and go from being a shepherd to a king. He knew what it was like to be promoted in, in the world. He he wrote everything from absolute triumph to bitter discouragement. He went the gamut of all human affections and all human emotions and from poverty um, to, to prince, to king. He wrestled with pain so deep that he could hardly bear to live. His own son, Absalom, tries to kill him and then was killed. He suffers from horrible guilt because of immorality and murder. His children brought him constant grief, and as a result of his own sin, his own son dies um, because of his uh, iniquity. He struggles to understand both the nature of God in his own heart. Of God, he says, holy and awesome is his name, while at the same time, he looks at himself and he says, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He told God often exactly how he felt, and he cried out for relief, though he admitted God had every right to punish him. And at the end of the psalm, David's psalm here, he, he looks out of, in, of a window of hope, but, and sometimes he doesn't find it. But he waits on God. He knows of the all-sufficient Savior, even though he doesn't know Christ in His fullness. He knows of the saving grace of God and what it takes um, to, under, to, 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 to reap the reward of that. Thus, he, he seeks after God. Listen, David's made of the same stuff that I am. And he's made of the same stuff that you are. And the same sins that he struggles with is the same sin that, that most of you struggle with. Um, the same uh, the difficulties and faults and misfortunes and oppression and persecution was not uh, something that was new in, in his day and neither is it new in our day. A man has been plagued by sin for ages past and the answer has always been running to God. So whenever we argue that the Word of God is sufficient to meet all of our needs according to His riches and glory, to make us the man of God thoroughly perfect, furnished for every good work, I'm going to argue that it's not um, a pursuit of the Bible alone. You know, that's part of the attacks that often come to churches like this and me as a minister. You know, as you try to fashion around the Word of God and you, know, you, you uphold the Bible and God's Word and you take it serious and you preach it and, um, and, and you just gather around it and you try to sing it and you try to pray it and you try to preach it and you try to teach it and you do this and you encourage it at home. Oftentimes, um, the, the charge is, is that you just put too much emphasis on the Bible. Um, you're a Bible thumper. You're a Bible worshiper. And let me just tell you, that's a danger. Okay, that's true. You can be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, you can be a legalist, and you can carry on um, God's Word, and you can read it as a book, and you can read it intellectually, and you can read it academically, and you can read it very mechanically, and if, if, if that's the idea that you get from this congregation or this church, know that that's not my intent. That, that the purpose of the Word of God is to bring us into communion with Him, 
And that whenever we pursue the Word of God, we are in, a, in essence pursuing Him. We are pursuing Christ and all of His glory. And that was David's pursuit as well. It was not a how-to. It was not a ten quick tips to making things right with God. Whenever you see David in the Psalms, you see him bear his heart just wide open and you see him pursue God and depend upon His Word. Why? Because that was the very representation that David had of God that he could grip a hold of, that he could take hold of. That there was this pursuit of the Word because there was this pursuit of God. There was this recognition and acknowledgement of the failures of his own heart um, and thus, within, contained within the Word of God was the very authority of God and the power of God and the sufficiency of God and the hope in God. Thus, He pursues His Word. And that's what I, I, I encourage you to do today. Um, to run to God as David ran to God. And to pursue the Word as David pursued the Word. Thus, we come to Psalm chapter number 19. What was his perception? What was his view um, of, of the Word of God? We read that through verses seven and nineteen, particular seven and nine, particularly, that the word of God is portrayed six different ways um, in seven through nine, all beginning with um, a description of the word of God, and then with that possessive statement of the Lord, that the testimony belong. This is of the Lord. That the law is of the Lord. That the precepts are of the Lord. That that term Lord in your Bible is probably uppercase. It's it's the term Jehovah. Um, it's 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 Yahweh. It's covenant keeping God. Um, that this word is the word for those whom He's covenanted with. It doesn't make sense to the world. They have no idea what they're reading. I mean, it's academic. It's mechanical. It's 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 intellectual. It's it's a pursuit of of power, of prestige, to, to use and abuse the Word of God for His own glory and its own gain, um, either to, to take advantage of other people or for your own self-righteousness. Um, but, but, but when God covenants with His people, the law of God becomes something totally different. It takes on a new form. Not that it, was always, not that it wasn't what it was, but that we didn't see what it truly was because of our own sinful state. And as a man or a woman or a child comes to Christ, and through repentance and faith and the Spirit of God enlightens their eyes and opens their ears and tenderizes their hearts and gives them a new heart. The law of God takes upon a new form. While it was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ, now the law of Christ becomes the very rule of faith for their, for their life. It is a way in which we abide in the Lord and we abide in Christ, John chapter number 15. It is a way in which He brings us further into communion with Him after bringing us in eternal union with Him at salvation. It is a way that we walk in the Lord and it's a way that we walk with the Lord and it's a way that we commune with Him. So as David writes this, he's not writing it in some mechanical, academic type of way um, to teach us what we are to do to be saved and, and how we are to profit with the Lord and make money or to, to, to profit off of Him. Um, if we'll only do these things. No, he's saying that, 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 that this is what it is. That it is the law, that the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul is what he says. Or I might say transforming the soul. Number one, it's perfect. The first statement in verse number seven says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What is the nature of it? What does it do? And you see the same model as in 2 Timothy chapter 3. What is it and what does it do? It is uh, the law of the Lord. It is the law of the Lord. And there's an adjective that describes it. It's perfect. 
The Hebrew word translated law there is the, the word that we get um, that emphasizes the teaching of Scripture. Here David refers to the Scripture as the sum of what God has revealed for our instruction. Remember 2 Timothy? Why was the Scriptures given? For our instruction. It's profitable. Whether it be who we are, whether it be what we believe, or whether it be what we are to do, the, t- the Scriptures, um, the summation of the Word of God teaches us. And it's perfect. It's whole. That's what the word means. It's complete. It literally can be translated there also sufficient. It conveys the idea that something is so comprehensive and it covers all aspects of an issue. One commentator writes that the meaning of the word perfect is that Scripture lacks nothing for its completeness. Nothing in order that it might be what it should be. It is complete as a revelation of divine truth. It's complete as a rule of conduct. It's absolutely true. It's adapted with consummate wisdom to the needs of man. It's unerring guide of conduct. There is nothing there which should lead men into error or sin. There is nothing essential for man to know which may not be found there. And whenever you say, and some people will come and they'll argue if the, if, you know, if the, if the Word of God is complete, um, when David's writing that, they didn't have the complete Word of God. I'm not talking about the content of Scripture. I'm talking about the nature of Scripture. That when God gives it, it's all that you need. Uh, for life and for godliness, that it carries with it um, the ability to accomplish what it came for. It does not lack. Um, teaching on marriage doesn't lack. All right? The Bible's teaching, whenever it gives a, 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 an instruction, whenever it gives a teaching, it doesn't lack in the ability to transform the soul, to convert the soul. That's the idea there, that the law of the Lord, that the teaching of Scripture is complete and it accomplishes whatever God sets it out to do. Um, such that it accomplishes the restoration of the soul. That's what the idea there is, restoring the soul. But the word uh, translated restoring could also mean converting. You may have a translation that says reviving or refreshing. But probably an all-encompassing term for that could be transforming. That the Word of God, the law of God is perfect. It is complete, it's whole, it's sufficient, and it transforms. Um, the word soul refers to the one's person, the inner man, the thing we talked about earlier, the thing that makes us us, um, the, the, the thing that, that, that makes you you, that makes Damon Damon, the thing that, that, that is, is inside this uh, body of flesh, um, that which gives life to it and makes it um, accountable to God. Um, David says that whenever teaching of Scripture goes forth, the law of God goes forth, it's completely sufficient to make you what God desires for you to be, to take you from A to B, in the beginning. You started out like this, and the Word of God is sufficient to make you that, that God is not God of the Egyptians, that doesn't give straw um, and tells you to make brick. Um, he doesn't tell you, make you to do, tell you to do something and tell you to accomplish it, but He doesn't give you the equipment to do that. The Word of God is sufficient to transform and take an old hell-bound rebellious sinner who's, who, who, who is lawless and loves himself and self-righteous and self-exalting and pursuing everything but God uh, and pursuing everything in himself. And he's able to take that man and restore and revive his soul and make him what he is not. And thus we should trust the Scriptures. And then that's what he goes on to say in the second illustration. The Scripture is trustworthy imparting wisdom. It is, um, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, he says. But David further expands on the uh, sufficiency of Scripture when he writes those words. The word testimony speaks of Scripture as a witness. Not only is it a law, it's a witness. 
And not only is it teaching, but it is a divine witness. Whose witness? Scripture is God's divine witness to who He is and what He requires of His creation, particularly us. The term sure there means that His testimony is just that. It's sure. It's unwavering. It's immovable. It's unmistakable. It's reliable and worthy to be trusted such that it provides a foundation on which to build one's life and their eternal destiny. So much more sure that Peter, as we uh, learned last week and in weeks previous, um, speaks of an an experience that he has on the Mount of Transfiguration that would just blow your mind. You know, that no man uh, up to that point had probably ever experienced. And uh, Peter writes that the Word of God, he has a more sure testimony, a more sure word. He has something that is to be confirmed. Why? Because our minds, as good as they are and as keen as they may be, um, our eyes and our ears often mislead us. And you and I, Peter desires, Paul desires, Christ desires, David desires to leave us something more sure, something we can sink our teeth into, something that will carry us into tomorrow, something that whenever all the world's falling apart, we can grab a hold of and we know that, it's, that, it's, that, it, that we can bank on it, that, it that, that we can hope in it, because it doesn't come from man. It comes from God Himself. Literally, that's the idea. That's the idea. One commentator writes, Peter knew a sounder basis for faith than any of the signs and wonders. He had seen our Lord Jesus Christ receive honor and glory from the Father and the Holy Mound and had been dazzled and carried out of Himself by visions and voices from heaven. But nevertheless, even when His memory and His heart are throbbing with reflections of that sublime scene, He says, we have something surer still in the prophetic Word. It was not the miracles of Christ by which He came to know Jesus. But by the Word of Christ is interpreted by the Spirit of Christ. And we could go to Luke chapter 16, that premier text in which a man over in, um, in, in Hades or in the fire cries out um, that someone would come back from the dead. And what does the man say? He says, he says that they have the law and the prophets. If they won't believe them, they won't believe somebody that comes back from the dead. Something as glorious as a, as a human resurrection. Um, why? Because that's happened. Men explain that away. Um, time and time again. You have the law, you have the prophets, you have the Word of God. They are sufficient to convert the soul. It is the divine witness of God Himself. That's the idea. Such that it makes men wise. It makes the simple wise, he says. The Hebrew word there translated simple comes from an expression that literally means to open a door. It gives the idea of a naive person whose, whose mind is constantly open. You hear the, 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 the idea you just need to be open-minded? That's the idea of the simple. He's always open-minded. He doesn't know when to close the door. Thus, um, the devil gets a foothold in um, and just ravages his heart and ravages his soul. He says that the Word of God um, is a testimony, a divine witness that teaches men to close, when to close the door, you know, when to open the door, what's, what's wise and what's foolish, when to go and when not. Um, it, it teaches men how to carry themselves in the world. It teaches men what's profitable and what's not. It teaches them how to carry themselves and not be a fool. That's the idea. Number three, Scripture is right causing joy. This one was particularly convicting to me. Um, somebody's working. The Scripture is right causing joy. Um, the text says that um, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, he says. But David adds here about Scripture's sufficiency that it's, it is sufficient to um, 
birth joy in the heart of those who adhere to God's word. He uses the term statutes there that literally could be translated precepts. That there are principles contained and precepts within God's word that are guidelines for not only character but also for conduct. And that God has created human beings to know how they are to be productive for God's glory. And that when a man lives productively for God's glory within those guidelines, that God produces a joy in his heart that is irrevocable. That the world cannot take away, it does not fade, it does not erode. Um, that God, that even in the midst of affliction and persecution, you can sit like the Apostle Paul in a jail and write an epistle like Philippians, um, in which the key verse or the key, the key word all throughout it is rejoice or have, have joy. That there is statutes within God's Word that whenever we come under them and live within those guidelines out of a gratitude for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and what God is, that it causes the heart to rejoice. It gives them a sense of well-being, of serenity, of tranquility, and of peace, um, such that, um, that it is, without a doubt, um, identifiable to the world all around us. That the Word of God brings joy to the heart. The Word of God brings joy to the heart. Has it, has it been too long since you sat down with the Word of God and you read through a psalm, or you read through Romans, or you read through 1 Corinthians, or you read through Revelation, and you raised your head with a, with a smile upon your face because you um, are in Christ, and you are in God, and you're walking in His ways, and there's just a satisfaction of the soul that peace overwhelms you as you cast your burdens upon Him, and you walk away rejoicing in your heart because... Um, because you're living within the guidelines of God's Word, because you're seeking to honor the Lord in your marriage, because you're seeking to honor the Lord with your children, because you're seeking to utilize the tools that God's given you in your career to bring honor to Him, because you're seeking as a church um, to just, just, just seek His face and seek His face holy. Thus, the only, uh, the only path that could be as you're following God's Word in total and utter submission is just a rejoicing in Christ. Because you've communed with Him this week. Yes, there's holiness, and yes, there's reverence, and yes, there's respect, but there's also a smile upon the face of a Christian on on many days, if not most, um, because of the communion that He's had with the Father. As He brings, the Father brings Him in close. And because He's adopted him into the family and given him an inheritance that's incorruptible, thus we preach with joy, thus we pray with joy, thus we uh, labor with joy, even when all hell, world, flesh, and the devil come at odds with the very church of Christ, we rejoice because we know that we are His. And they do not have the power to take that away. And we know this. Even when all things seem to be falling apart, we know this because we have a more sure word. We know this because our experience doesn't dictate our hearts. It is governed and led by the very Word of God. Not only that, number four, it's pure, enlightening the eyes. It's authoritative and therefore able to bring light into man's chaos and confusion and to replace man's ignorance and lack of understanding with clear direction. Psalm 19.8 says um, that, the fear, uh, that, that, that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We receive a fourth characteristic of God's Word and it's in the, in, the, in, the, in the theme of it's sufficient, um, that it's pure, enlightens the eyes. The term commandment stresses the, 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 the idea of a non-optional nature. You know, it's a, it's a precept, it's a, it, it's a command, it's imperative. God commands it. 
Thus, it speaks of the responsibility that we have to God and His Word. And that when we fulfill the commandment, um, we're to fulfill it, and, and we're to fulfill it in a way that, that, that it's pure, it's, 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 it's lucid. The concept here is that the idea of Scripture is not mystifying. It's not confusing. It's not puzzling. And I know that we can all sit down afterwards and we'll talk about it and we'll talk about the nuances and the details and the fact that Peter, he was just enamored by Paul's writings and they were hard to understand. But what we're talking about here is not the, fi- the, the minutia, the, fina- the, fina- the, the, the finer details of, of, of the Word of God or God's desire for mankind or the Gospel. That the Word of God, whenever it comes in its fullness and in a general scope, I mean, it's pretty clear. You know, and that when God, um, and when the Spirit of God comes with it, He reveals too. That's that's the that's the nature of revelation altogether. So to say that I can't read my Bible and I just didn't get anything out of it this morning goes against the very nature of Scripture itself to God's people. That revelation in and of itself um, is is self identifies itself as something revealed. That there is a mystery to those who are outside of Christ and who don't know Him. Christ enters into the world and pulls back the veil for all the world to see. And the problem with most people is not that it is not clear, but that it is clear. And they, want, and they, and they just desire to reject it and rebel against it. But the Word of God is very clear. It's very clear about the nature of man. It's very clear about the nature of Christ. It's very clear about the nature of salvation. It's very clear about the nature of the world, the, the flesh and the devil. It's very clear. And that's why most of the people in the world have a problem with it. You know? That's why you preach a, a message or proclaim or talking with a friend and you declare God's Word. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow on most days. And people don't want to swallow it because it doesn't taste good. But the Word of God to the believer, the covenant, the one whom God has covenanted with, who has came to Him by faith and repentance, learn that, that, that it's like honey to the, to the, to the tongue. That, that, not, that not only is it clear, but it is to be tasted and to see that it is good. And that if there's a doctrine that just rubs us the wrong way, and I've had many of them. You know, I've had, I remember years ago in seminary being rubbed the wrong way with many commentators on certain things. And I just had to come to grips with the fact that if this is the truth, um, then, then I, need to, I need to not only adhere to it and proclaim it, I need to love it. I need to love it. Men need to love what God teaches about them. Women need to love what God teaches about them. Husbands and wives need to love about what God says about them. The church needs to love what God says about them. Why? Because the Word of God is like um, honey um, in, the, in the honeycomb. Not only that, but the Scripture is clean, enduring forever, it says in uh, verse number 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Um, such an interesting way to put that. Um, it's interesting here because there's no explicit reference to God's Word there. But this idea of fear of the Lord. But I'm, I'm convinced given the context that this too is just another synonym for God's Word. That the fear of the Lord is clean. That the Word of God is clean and that we're to approach it with the fear of the Lord. Why? Because it, and it endures forever. Um, fear speaks of the reverential awe for God that compels us to worship Him. Scripture in this sense is God's manual for how to worship Him. That there is to be a joy and we are to rejoice and be happy and we should be the happiest people in all the world because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. But at the same time, I mean, we are to carry with us a reverential awe for the Father. Why? Because clean speaks of absence of any impurity, any filthiness, any defilement, and any imperfection. That the Scripture is without sin, it is, it is without evil, it is without corruption, and it is without error. That the truth conveys 
The, the, the truth it conveys is therefore abundantly undefiled and without blemish. That what we have before our eyes this morning, speaking particularly of God and Christ and us, is, is 100% true. It is not to be challenged. It is to be accepted. And it's not just to be accepted. It is to be joyfully submitted to whatever it says and that we are to love it. It is flawless, as David says in another place, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. And it is because it is flawless, it endures forever, he says. And any change or modification, whether it's to add or to take away, would only introduce imperfection. And it would only corrupt. Thus, we are to take the Word of God simply as the Word of God. We are not to add. We are not to take away. We are to accept it as pure, sinless, and errant truth. And we are to love every word of it and to live off of every word of it. And because of its pureness, it will last forever. Thus, it can be trusted forever. Number six, Scripture is true and altogether righteous. He says that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This provides us insights about God, man, life, and everything needed to live for godliness. They're altogether true. They're altogether righteous. There is no unfairness with God. There is only truth, mercy, and grace. And therefore, it should lead men to understand and practice what is truly real and what is truly right. Um, the term judgments in that context, it means divine verdicts. As God is a judge sitting upon a court, and He brings a verdict on some situation or something. And that it's always right. That when God does it, that, that, that we don't look because of our moral intuition and we look at something and say, man, uh, I know the Scripture says this, but it doesn't seem right. We don't do that. We don't, um, we don't gauge our morality on what we think and then, and then put God to the test as if we're the judge and He's the defendant. No, God determines what is right and you say, well, how do you know that? Well, uh, number one, you go to God's Word and see what it is. But, uh, but, but what God reveals about Himself, that's right. He is the definition of right. And you don't look at God and say, well, I'm not sure if that was right that He did in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. You simply look at God and you say, if He did it, it's right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? Genesis. That when God does something, it, there is no um, possibility of Him doing it wrong. That God contains within Himself righteousness such that every judgment that goes forth out of His mouth um, is inherently right. And then number seven, if you could, we move on um, out of that framework. And He continues to define what the Word of God is. And He says that, uh, verse number 10, it is more to be desired than of gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. David, in some sense, concludes God's Word with this, that it's more valuable and precious than anything that this world has to offer. And it's perfectly sufficient for every need of life. Thus, the Scripture asserts to its own immense value. It is more valuable than gold. During those days, what was more valuable than gold? Not much of anything, if anything. As, a, as for its ability to satisfy Spiritual appetites, he says, it's sweeter than honey and the drippings that come out of the honeycomb. That, that what we have contained within the Scriptures is more valuable than your financial pursuits. It's more valuable than your house. It's more valuable than your cars. It's more valuable than your relationships. Why? Because God governs all those with this. 
And you'll never find meaning in that that is of eternal value unless you take the revelation that God has given you um, to govern that. That's the idea. And that when one walks in the precious nature of the Word of God within those guidelines, he sees the value of it. Such that whenever he embraces that even the, 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 the life of godliness and a life in communion with God, that's what we're arguing here. We're not arguing a, a, a pharisaical type of idea that if you get these things in order that you're going to earn some righteousness with God. Thus, it's as valuable as your eternal soul. The idea is, is that, that whenever you yield yourself submissively to God's Word because that is in a sense who He is as is revealed to you, that you commune with Him and that life with Him is what's invaluable. That life with Him is what's incalculable. That life with Him is what is sweet. That life with Him is what will keep you. That life with Him is what will preserve you. That life with Him will, will take out all sourness and all bitterness caused by sin and produce the sweetness of life and the joy of a believer that surpasses anything that this world can provide. And that's what keeps you and that's how He preserves you from the, from the, from the dangers and the disasters and the tragedies of life. That, that, is, that, that is what is right. That this morning... That what is right is for you to come under the, the joyful submission of God Himself as you yield yourself to His Word because it reveals who He is in His very essence and nature. That's what we're arguing. That's the Word of God. It keeps you back, your servant, verse 13, from presumptuous sins. It lets them not have dominion over you. It, it, then you'll be blankless. Then there'll be great reward. And then you'll be innocent of transgression. That's the idea. That the Word of God keeps a man because when lived rightly, it brings him into communion with the Lord and thus preserves him in all of life. <coughs> and you may say, As a result of that, but what of the sufficiency of Christ? I thought we only needed Christ. You see, that's the idea of many people. And they want to bring a, a barrier between Christ and His Word um, in such a way that it sounds almost somewhat super spiritual to take Christ over the precepts and the principles and the guidelines that are laid out within Scripture. Um, but what of the sufficiency of Christ? I thought that Christ was all that we needed. I mean, He is our eternal rest. He is our Sabbath. He is our sacrifice. He is all of these things. And I thought that all that we needed was Christ and that, that, that with Christ we have all that we need. True. But I may ask, in what manner is Christ ministered to you? That there is no separation um, to be... To, to, to be um, to dissect you from Christ and His Word. Um, I read a passage to you last week, and I want to read it again. You don't need to turn there. But Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1, you read this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth? Before who eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You foolish Galatians, you have left Christ. How? By adhering to a law that is not your own. But he begs them, how in the world did you come to Christ? He implores them to think, how in the world did you come to Christ? He says, by the Spirit. By the Spirit accomplishing what? In what? How, how did he, he do that? By, by publicly proclaiming Jesus Christ. He says, you had Jesus Christ publicly portrayed before you. 
And I asked the question as I did last week, as it's really, uh, the Lord has used it to bring to my thinking the necessity of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God and to bring us into communion with Christ as it accomplishes, as He accomplishes by His Spirit um, through the very Word of God being preached and read. How was Christ publicly portrayed before you? In the Spirit. But how was the Spirit operating? Through the preaching of the Gospel. Through the preaching of the Word of God. Galatia was, was geographically removed from Jerusalem um, uh, hundreds, if not more than a thousand miles. Uh, th those that at Galatia did not see Christ publicly crucified, at least most of them. Not only that, it's a, uh, Galatia was probably the churches were not um, uh, inhabited or, or formed um, at least 12 to 15 years after the crucifixion of Christ, as far as we can tell. So they're geographically and historically removed. Then how can Paul say with any, with any consistency and, and, and trustworthiness that Christ was portrayed before you publicly through the preaching of the Word of God? That when the gospel goes forth and the word of God is proclaimed, Christ is ministered to you. That the very presence of Christ is brought before you such that you see Him and it is as if God is there with you. That the church is essential. That the necessity of the, the word of God being preached is essential. That the gospel going forth is essential because that's the primary manner in which the Spirit uses to bring men into union with Him. Thus we must preach. Thus we must proclaim. Thus we must declare the entire counsel of God. The whole counsel of God, as the Scripture says. And that the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the Word are married together as the Word is preached um, to the, the congregation or to the hearers. That Christ is sufficient. And one of the ways that Christ primarily ministers Himself to us is through the Word of God. That there is sufficiency in Christ, but that does not battle against the sufficiency of the Word. They are two that are married together. Why? Because Christ is the embodiment of the Word. He is the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, that as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, that, 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 that the glory of Christ is portrayed before us every Sunday if we will come to it by faith according to the power of the Spirit. That He is publicly portrayed as His gospel is preached. And if that be not the case, then we are utterly hopeless because Christ died 2,000 years ago. And we did not see Him and we did not hold Him with our hands. Then how in the world do we receive Him? By the preaching of the gospel and the preaching um, of the Word. And that's what you see in Second Peter in chapter number 1. That everything was given to us according to um, life and godliness is the argument that the Apostle Peter makes. He says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our, of, our, of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How, Peter? Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And the, the argument that the Apostle Peter is making is that the way that we tap into the powerful, all-sufficient um, uh, nature of Christ is through the knowledge that we have of Him. It is through um, His... So when you and I are saved, we have everything um, that we need for life and godliness. We are eternally saved and we will be carried on. Christ will accomplish that. It's totally His work. Um, how does He keep us? How does He persevere us? 
uh, through Psalm chapter 19, through the Word of God. And that we, and that really one of the great necessities of the Christian life um, is not new insights, it's not this or that. Um, it is to come into a fuller knowledge of Jesus Christ day in and day out. That's it. You as a believer, if you came to Jesus Christ by faith and repentance and you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you have everything that you need, you have all the straw to make brick and to build this temple. Um, the problem oftentimes with us is ignorance, we don't know, or apathy, we don't care. And that's why there is incumbent upon the church, the pillar and the ground of truth, to uphold it such that we proclaim it, that, that men will walk in a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ today than they had yesterday, and thus be more like Him today than we, had, than we were yesterday. And the Word of God rebuking us and correcting us and instructing us in areas that we did not know, thus coming walking into the revelation of Christ Himself and the fact that He is all-sufficient, that Christ is more than sufficient. And that the Word is more than sufficient. And these aren't two opposing doctrines. These are one and the same. That Christ is the Word. And that what we have for us, that Christ should be the ultimate subject of our preaching. That if you get tired of hearing a gospel message, then there's plenty of churches that, that, that will spend you know, two days a year preaching on them and throwing Jesus Christ a, you know, a, a bone. But here, if we have not Christ, we have nothing. That Christ is the subject and the totality of Scripture. When Jesus is on the road after His resurrection, He takes some disciples aside on more than one account and He talks to them and exposits the Old Testament Scriptures concerning Himself and He tells them of what is to come. That Genesis is about Christ and the coming consummation. That Revelation is about the final consummation. And everything in between is about Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father, putting His enemies under His footstool, building His kingdom, saving people by the grace of God, and keeping them until that end. That Christ is more than sufficient, thus we must preach the Word. Why? Because He is the embodiment of that Word. That He is our ministry. They are not at odds with one another. That Christ is the key to a godly life. And Christ is present in the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. You just have to receive it by faith. I love uh, uh, John MacArthur. He writes in his book, Christ, uh, Our Sufficiency in Christ. Um, he tells of a story about a man who um, was shut out of the house on a cold night. And uh, to his, uh, unbeknownst to his knowledge or maybe in the anxiety, um, he failed to realize that the key was in his um, pocket all night. That he had the ability to enter in, and it was there with him the entire time. Yet he did not access it, maybe because of ignorance, or maybe because he simply forgot. But he goes on to write that that true story illustrates the predicament of Christians who try to gain access to God's blessings through human means, all while possessing Christ, who is the key to every spiritual blessing. He alone fulfills the deepest longing of our hearts and supplies every spiritual resource we need. Believers have in Christ everything that will ever need to be to meet any trial, any craving, any difficulty they might ever encounter in this life. Even the newest convert possesses sufficient resources for every spiritual need. From the moment salvation, uh, each believer in Christ, and Christ is in the believer, and the Holy Spirit abides with him as well. The Christian is his temple. Of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. So every Christian is a self-contained treasury of divinely bestowed spiritual affluence. There is nothing more, no great transcendent secret, no ecstatic experience, no hidden spiritual wisdom that can take Christians to some higher plane or spiritual life. His divine power has been granted to us pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. 
The true knowledge of Him refers to saving knowledge. To seek something more is to frantically be knocking on a door, seeking what is inside, not realizing you hold the key in your pocket. No higher knowledge, no hidden truth, no nothing besides the all-sufficient resources that we find in Christ exist that can change the human heart. That Christ is sufficient. And that contained within you, if you're saved by the grace of God, is a treasury and a wealth of knowledge. That Christ stands up, as in Isaiah 9-6, as the wonderful Counselor, who was tempted in every way like you are, yet without sin. Thus we have a great high priest who um, can, can sympathize with us. Therefore run boldly to the throne room of grace. That we have everything that we need. That God is not an Egyptian tyrant, commanding something to be done, yet not giving it. He gave it all in Christ. And thus, let us pursue the Word, church, but not for the Word's sake, not for the sake of intellect, not for the sake of academia, not for the sake of cerebral enjoyment, but let us pursue the Word of God because we pursue Christ. Let us preach the Word of God because we preach Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2, the apostle comes to the to the to the to the to the um, the conclusion that um, if he's going to preach anything, it's going to preach Christ to him crucified. He does not come with eloquent words. Some people argue that uh, they didn't have eloquence back then. You know that it was uh, days of antiquity. Let me tell you what we don't have today is eloquence. The Greeks had eloquence. Now, the philosophers of old knew how to put on a drama. They knew how to use rhetoric. They knew what was... Um, I mean, men would walk around as philosophers and rhetoricians um, uh, as, as um, employment. That was their career. That was their vocation. That's what they did. They gave their lives to it. The apostle was one of those. He was a Roman. Um, he was steeped in Greek culture. He trained under rabbis. He was a Jewish man, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. If anybody had anything to boast, it was him. Yet he comes in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And as high as we hold him, he didn't want us to hold him that high because he wanted to be as low as he could be that Christ may be glorified. Thus he says, I abandoned all eloquence. You know, I abandoned all rhetoric. And I decided to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that was it. You say, that's all that he preached? No, he preached the entire counsel of God. And he could say that, and he could say that with all authority and with all trustworthiness. Why? Because to preach the whole counsel of God is to preach Christ. He didn't say that the gospel message is all that I, 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 I got on board with, and I'm going around to, uh, from, from, from venue to venue and church to church and jail to jail just preaching an evangelistic message. No, he came to Corinth, and he came to Galatia, and he came to Philippians, and he came to a whole host of other churches that we don't have record of, and he preached the, uh, the gospel, yes, and Christ crucified, but contained within all of the Old Testament Scriptures, he continued to do the same as Jesus did, to expound them according to Christ. Thus, the Word is sufficient for everything you need, church. Everything. Some of you are dealing with discouragement. Some of you are dealing with depression. Some of you are dealing with anxiety. Some of you are looking around and you're dictating your theology on the circumstances. America's going to hell in a handbasket and, and you're on board and you're scared to death. You know? Wondering where this thing is going. I beg you to pursue Christ in His Word. And you say, like, they don't understand what we're going through. You are so isolated historically and geographically um, that, that, that you don't understand that, 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 that the church has always been the enemy of Satan. 
You know, persecution has always been a thing. Opposition has always been a thing. Uh, look at Paul. Look at David. David understands. Read the Psalms. Like I find a friend and a brother on many days just going to the Psalms and reading with David. You know, who understands my darkness and who understands my discouragement and who understands my depression and who understands the opposition and who understands the environment and who understands the, the battle with the flesh, who understands the battle with the devil, who understands what it's like to not get what is owed to him um, and, and, and even what God ordains is right, but taught to be patient and long-suffering and, and taught to love and given friends along the way to encourage him that, 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 that we are not geographically and historically isolated from the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New or the church in recent days. This is par for the course. And you say, well, how do we act? I say, it's all contained here. It's there. Peter tells us that we are to act as Christ did. What do you do in the midst of a tyrannical government? What do you think Jesus dealt with? A tyrannical government. What do you think, uh, you know, what do, what do we do with all the immorality? What do you think Paul dealt with? Immorality at Ephesus, immorality at, at Antioch, immorality all throughout the world that we don't even have a clue, you know? The godlessness of those ages was just insurmountable and incom incomparable. It may get that way one day here and worldwide, but in those days, some of the most ungodly things were done in Colosseums that can't be spoken of in a mixed congregation. You know, like we are not unique in the sense that, 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 that we're in a world that God has never governed before. God is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. The Spirit of God is powerful. The Gospel still accomplishes in the hearts and minds of unbelievers and believers what it has for the last six to 10,000 years. And it will continue to accomplish it. Therefore, be faithful. As a church, what will we do? We will pursue Christ by preaching the whole counsel of God and exalting Him in every page that we possibly can. If I can find Him there, you will know it. Because this is our hope. This is our only hope. This is it. We are the pillar and the ground of truth. Thus we must preach. We must proclaim. Men, carry it. <clears throat> into the highways and into the hedges. Carry it into your homes. It is sufficient that you have contained within you all that you need for life and godliness. May God reveal it to you as you pursue it in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. Father, we thank You for the sufficiency of Your Word. We thank You that You have not decided to wait till the last five decades to bring about the truth that will finally set us free as God's people. But that you have constantly been pursuing a covenant people since the very beginning. God, that you have always revealed yourself in many forms to those, Father, whom you desire. Whether it was Adam in the garden by pursuing him. Whether it was coming to Abraham, Father, <clears throat> and covenanting with him. Whether it was going to the prophets. Um, whether it was speaking audibly to apostles and prophets in former ages or us in these final days speaking to us through Christ and leaving us through Paul and Peter and many other men a faithful word to carry us on. God, we are insufficient. And in our weakness, we find strength. So may we find it this morning. May we look at the world and everything that's going on and, wring our, and in the midst of wringing our hands, Father, stop and remind ourselves of the great and precious promises that are in Christ. 
Father, as we struggle with sin day in and day out, and some even to the point where it feels we are enslaved once again, may we remember what Christ accomplished on our behalf. And may we pursue Him. And may the glory and the majesty and the beauty of Christ just disintegrate any, any desire, Father, to pursue the lusts of our hearts. God, may we be so present, may you be so present manifestly among us in the preaching of your word and in reading and in prayer and in the midst of God's people that there is no way in the world that we could not or that we could engage in such sins because we know how dishonoring it is to you and we love you. Father, we love you so much and we glory in your grace and we thank you for your measurable glory in Christ. God, and we put our hope in you. And in some sense, we put our hope in the word these great and precious promises, Lord. Um, these precepts, these judgments, Father, that, are, are, that, that cultivate our joy, that cultivate our peace, that cultivate our righteousness, Father, and we understand the embodiment of that was Christ, who is our peace, who is our rest, who is our righteousness, who is our law, Father. So as we submit to the Word, may we forever submit to Christ. May we not worship a book or give ourselves over to uh, mental exercises. And may you engage our spirits through the preaching of your word such that, Father, it transforms our souls and continues to do so until we see you face to face and finally give you the glory and honor that is due your name. God, go with us in this endeavor because we know that we cannot do it alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.